I think in in just about every every well, let me say this: in every religion I have studied and gotten to know people who are part of, um, there is a pole of that religion uh, that calls people toward love, that calls people toward mutual respect, that calls people toward uh, working for the common good, that calls people toward humility and says, we don't have all the answers, um, that calls people to be humble and keep uh, keep learning through their whole lives and through all generations. So that pole really exists. And in every religion I've been exposed to, there's another pole that is like, we're better than everybody else. We've got it right. They've got it wrong. They're out to get us. We better defend ourselves. And uh, it's just remarkable how similar. So I've become convinced that that problem isn't a religious problem. That is a human problem. <laughs> and, and it because human beings are involved, it shows up in every religion. And this to me is a wonderful thing about Jesus. You can say, oh, Jesus was entering into this human problem. And if we say that we want to follow him, then we are going to take very seriously what he said about how to deal with that human problem. We're going to watch how he does it in the stories about him. And we're going to listen to what he says in his teaching and find that. And we'll find great guidance and resource in that for dealing with it in our situation, because it's not just it's not just religion. There are different ways of being American. There are different ways of being a capitalist. There, you know what I'm saying? There's a, a more and less loving version of everything. And if we believe that the spirit is the, that the spirit is the presence of God in this world that evokes love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If, if that's what we believe, then we look for those fruits and say, Oh, it's not that this person has that religious bumper sticker on their car, that they're wearing that religious label. It's, oh, this person is showing fruit that comes from the Holy Spirit. I don't think that's being less Christian to believe that. I, I think that's being deeply Christian to believe that. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I am Seth, your host. Thank you for downloading today's episode. Thank you for your continued support and listenership. And thank you most importantly to the patrons uh, there's been a recent uptick in some of that, and so I I encourage more to do that. And for those of you that have been here since the beginning and the new patrons, thank you so, so, so much. You have no idea how much your generosity helps the show. Just a brief reminder, if you have not yet done so, hit pause, go to wherever you happen to download this from, and just rate and review the show. Uh, those are slowly but surely coming in, but that does help the show reach more ears. And I thank you in advance for doing so. As we look at surveys and research, and it seems like every other week or month, a new survey comes out that says millennials and the generation after millennials could care less about the church. I am a millennial. And I do mirror that. I, I feel like I care about the church, but I know so many of my friends could care less. But they are generous. They are humble. And they do care about humanity just 
the church doesn't do it for them. And so what does that mean? So I sat down and spoke with Brian McLaren, who is very, very well spoken. Uh, And he wrote a book called The Great Spiritual Migration. And we talk about that. What is the future of evangelicalism? How do we talk about this with our kids? How do we deal with our religion in America? If we're migrating away from something, where are we going to? How do we prepare to get there? And how do we how do we get healthy now, today? How do we begin to actively engage and help in our communities and in our families to do church better, to do religion and Christianity better? And so I think those are big questions. So here we go. Brian McLaren. Brian, thank you so much for making the time. And I know we've we've worked through many different times over the past few months to come onto the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I appreciate you being here today. I'm very honored to be with you. So I got to be honest. I've read not all of your books. You've you've read, and I, I realized this year you've you've written for two decades. And so I'm I'm still young enough that I wasn't aware of you, even though I probably should have been as I was growing up and. <laughs> Had I been, maybe I wouldn't no, no, have. No, no apologies necessary. You're, you're one of seven and a half billion people who never heard of me, so no, no worries. No, I'm sure it's less than that. It's at least 6.9 billion or so. It's, I'm sure it's less than that. But to be honest, I feel like if I had, maybe my, uh, my angst over the past decade would not have been so prolonged or so whatever the adjective is. And so I don't say this half half heartedly when i'm i'm extremely excited to talk with you and and um i think the conversation that we'll have about your most recent book and kind of where that leaves the trajectory for the church is worthwhile and needed so can you can you start with since there are 6.9 billion people at least that are maybe unfamiliar with you can you just briefly bring us up to speed on you uh, just in a nutshell kind sure. of your upbringing and what impacted your life all the way to now Sure. Well, I uh, I grew up uh, in a fundamentalist Christian uh, household. Um, nowadays, they call them evangelicals, but I really just think evangelical and fundamentalist are, you know, like uh, like vanilla and uh, you know vanilla fudge or something. Mm-hmm. Um, they're pretty closely related. Uh, and uh, I was a very sincere kid, firstborn child, so I wanted to please everybody. I and I. Uh, learned the Bible. I memorized so many Bible verses and went to Bible camp and went to Bible club. And, you know, I was just very much in that culture. Um, I, when I 
became a teenager, I, I really was interested in science. And uh, I remember thinking, uh, I thought evolution was just fascinating. Uh, and I remember my junior high Sunday school teacher said, uh, no, no, you have to make a choice. You can either believe in God or evolution, but you can't believe in both. And I remember I was 14 years old and I thought, okay, four, four more years and I'm out of here. <laughs> um, and I, I also loved rock and roll music and I played in a couple bands. And back in those days, fundamentalists and evangelicals didn't like rock and roll. So, um, of course now they, they love it, but, uh, anyway, I just thought I'm on my way out. I ended up having a kind of surprising and quite a powerful spiritual experience uh, in my teenage years in, in connection with the Jesus movement and the charismatic movement. So I went from fundamentalist to, um, you know, charismatic. And, and in the process, I was exposed to what people now call neo-Calvinism. So I just got thrown in the deep end. And somewhere in there, I started reading Francis Schaeffer and C.S. Lewis, who back in the 1970s, uh, when I was kind of coming of age, uh, and when I was a young adult, they, they were the smartest uh, Christians that I knew about. Um, I should say, I, I also, I'm very grateful, I came across, I, I was an English major, and when I was in graduate school, I ended up doing my thesis on a uh, Catholic novelist named Walker Percy, who in many ways opened the door for me to something a lot broader and deeper than, you know, various uh, flavors of evangelicalism and fundamentalism that I'd grown up with. And um, I, uh, my plan was to be a college English teacher. I started teaching, and um, but during that time, ended up being part of a little group that started a church, and uh, several years into that, ended up leaving teaching to become a pastor, and I was a pastor for 24 years. During that time, all of the issues and questions that you spoke about, uh, you know, causing you angst were causing me a lot of angst. And uh, I wasn't really aware of anybody who was grappling with the same questions I was. I, it, when I started writing my first book, I managed to stumble across a few people who, you know, I, I, I felt I wasn't totally alone. But in many ways, that angst that you spoke of is what drove me to write. <laughs> I was going to say drove me to drink, but an an equally addictive uh, and sometimes destructive habit of writing. And so that's what I've been doing for the last 20 years. Yeah. Well, and for those listening, if you're in that 6.9 billion, just stop right now. Um, it's, it's not uncommon to find some of Brian's books on sale quite frequently, well less than a Starbucks coffee, some of the older material. And it is well worth digging through that. Um, I, I am curious. So the the title of your book is The Great Spiritual Migration. And when I hear the word migration, I I instantly go to birds. And 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 it implies that I'm going somewhere but I'm also going to come back. And so where am I going or where is the church going? What are you trying to say? And are we coming back or are we just are we immigrating, not m- migrating? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I'm I'm a big bird guy, so I'm interested in birds and their migration as well. Um, uh, and you could say there's a cyclical dimension to this. Uh, in, in many ways, what in, in for those of us who are in the United States, America has this cyclical pattern of uh, populism and then openness. You know, racism, research, uh, 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 moving away from racism, a, a drift back toward it. Uh, uh, populism, 
you know, we, there, there certainly are cyclical dimensions to uh, American culture, um, and maybe even just in human behavior, we tend to the pendulum tends to swing um, from one side to another. But um, you know, another way to think about migration, if you, is to think that human beings, as far as we know by science right now. Every bit of DNA and every human being in the world came from a group of people in East Africa somewhere around 200,000 years ago, and for uh, and, and sometime around 70,000 years ago, they started uh, their population grew enough that they started migrating out of Africa. That, that has not been a, cyc- uh, a cyclical uh, or boomerang kind of migration. Um, that's been a, a steady. Uh, expansion around the planet, and uh, and of course, while we're talking, there's a good chance that the uh, that the uh, space station will go overhead to remind us that our migration m- might only be in its very earliest stages. Who knows? Maybe by uh, the lifetime of some people who are listening, uh, there, there'll be a human colony on Mars. So, um, you know, we human beings are migratory creatures, and that's really the 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 image that I wanted to work with. This idea that we're on a journey, that we don't stand still, that we always move forward. And one of the horrible traps that uh, that religious communities fall into, this ha- certainly happens in Christianity, but it happens in Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, and so on, um, is we get this idea that some there was some golden age, whether it's right now or 50 years ago or 500 years ago, and that religion's job is to remain nostalgic about that golden age and hold on to it as strong as possible. When I think a much better way to think about uh, religion is that religion is actually an evolutionary survival strategy. Um, and that at its best, religion is one of the things that helps us survive and continue to adapt and move forward in time, in, in changing times. And the fact that that might sound crazy and radical right now just tells you that we're, I hope, in the later stages of a major regressive turn in religion, and that's part of what I'm arguing uh, against. When I read your book, I was reminded of, and I can't think of the book right now, I, I'm at a loss. Phyllis Tickle wrote a book, and she talks about like a, a great upheaval or a rummaging uh, yes. like every 500 years, and it's new. I, I've started reading about it back in February. And and as I read, I was like, this can't be true. And so I started researching. I'm like, man, eh, she's on to something every 500 years. And so, I mean, we just last year had the 500th anniversary of, you know, the Protestant Reformation. And so I wonder, do you think, is there any truth to that? And, and how does that relate to a spiritual migration? Because what I see is, well, so as I go back through and, and I've recently found a channel on Netflix or Amazon, I can't remember which, I can go back and look for, at the news broadcasts from the 50s and the 60s and the 30s, and there's not really anything changed except for the quality of the camera work and some of the reporting. <laughs> like, it's the same horrible, racist, just horrible things. It doesn't matter if it's the church or if it's politics. All, all we're doing is changing the name. Yeah. And so I, yeah. I hear a possible shift or reformation coming, but I also don't see anything changing, if that makes sense. And maybe yeah. I'm not saying that well. I don't know. No, no, Seth. But, but I think your uh, the, the kind of tension that you're feeling is exactly what an intelligent person should feel. Um, let me say it this way. If people are optimistic 
uh, and, uh, you know, see the sunny side and say, oh, we're, you know, and every day in every way we're getting better and better and that kind of thing. That's just incredibly naive. Um, uh, you know, just the issue of weapons, for example, we, uh, the human uh, species has been creating more and more dangerous weapons uh, for our whole history. And, you know, in, in uh, the generation just before mine, when nuclear weapons were unleashed, uh, you know, this was epic. This was epical. This was, uh, uh, I think, a inflection point in history um, where suddenly the stakes became higher. A friend of mine said our choice, well, Dr. King said our choice isn't between um, uh, compassion and lack of compassion. It's, it's between compassion and non-existence or, or non-violence or non-existence. And, and so, uh, I think it's it's really unwise to be overly optimistic. On the other hand, um, let me give you just maybe one real quick example. Uh, when I, I'm I'm 62, so when I was a kid in the early 60s, um, you know there were only about four television stations, and uh, and on Saturday and Sunday afternoons they played movies, um, and and they were usually black and white movies from the 1930s, 1940s. Uh, in 1950s. And um, when I was a boy, it was extremely common uh, on Saturday or Sunday afternoon to see somebody, a, a man in a movie, slap or push or hit a woman. And um, what is really shocking for people here is it wasn't the bad guys doing this. It was the good guys doing this. Um, in other words, violence toward women was uh, tolerated. Um, and it was so common. And, uh, uh, and when you think, when I tell people that today, they're so shocked to hear it. Well, the truth is we really changed and we don't show those movies anymore. <laughs> in fact, people are appalled to even see those movies anymore. And that's just in one lifetime. It's the same thing with smoking. You think smoking was normative, uh, you know, 50 years ago. And if anybody would have said, Hey, someday it will be uh, illegal to, to smoke in a restaurant or to smoke on an airplane or smoke in a public place. Um, uh, people would say, oh, that'll never, ever happen. Um, so I, I agree with you. It's unwise to be overly optimistic and it's unwise to be naive. But on the other hand, it's also inaccurate to say that we aren't making any progress. Um, and I also would say that a certain, an excessive pessimism can be just as harmful as an except, excessive optimism. Optimism says, oh, everything's going to be okay. Just take it easy and relax. And there's a kind of pessimism that says, uh, nothing's going to get any better. There's no hope. Just take it easy and relax. And both end up being anesthetizing and turn people into complicit, becoming complicit in, in, in the worst things happening. So, and all that's to say, I think the tension that you're articulating is a very good and healthy and wise tension. That's that's both encouraging, but it's also slightly exhausting. Because I, I, you had <laughs> talked about earlier when you began writing, and and I I hear some of that same when I be I had some of the same thoughts, and that's this has been my outpouring. I'm not much of a writer, but I, I do like to have the thought experiments, which is the outpouring of this podcast, and. I did not expect that many people would listen and I was wrong. 
And I also did not yeah. expect how often I would get called, you know, a heretic or I, I basically inserted myself into a tension that I don't know I was theologically prepared for. Um, yes. And that's fine. I mean, that's and, and to reference the movies that when you were speaking about movies, you know, and, and shows being dismissive and abusive towards women, I immediately thought of John Wayne because he does that often. And I yes. watched those with my grandma growing up. And for those listening, if you don't believe me, find the movies and. He does that, and not only to women, but to children. But he would often just yes. throw a kid in the river and say, what do you mean you don't know how to swim? And so I feel like I've done that to yes. myself. But um, <laughs> yes. so I guess it's encouraging to hear you say that that should be expected, but it's also, I find it exhausting. <laughs> so, Yeah, well, and, and I don't want to minimize that at all, Seth, but let me just say that it, um, it, it, it takes a lot of courage to be the first person to ask questions in a community that is addicted to a certain kind of certainty and that has a social pressure against uh, questioning convention. And it takes a whole lot of courage. Um, for the second person, it takes like 3% less courage, but it still takes a lot of courage. And for the third person, maybe 3% less. In other words, as the process goes, I think it becomes easier. But the first people in any group that are in that social circle that are the ones asking questions, it really is. There's a huge headwind that you're going into. I, I, one way that's helped me understand this is, is I've become convinced that, that thinking is a social act. In other words, thinking doesn't just happen inside my brain because my brain is wired into the brains of all the people to whom I belong. And, uh, and so I find that if I'm in the center of a group, like just sort of the average of a group, it's easy to think. But the closer I move to the margins, uh, the way I say it sometimes is I feel I'm, I'm thinking in molasses, you know, right. uh, it's just harder to think. And that's totally apart from the negative feedback that comes. It's just, we're so wired for tribal behavior that to differ from our tribe, is really, really tough. It really takes courage. You know, I, I, as someone, you know, uh, rooted in the Gospels, that's why I think Jesus had so much to say about people not being ashamed to, uh, of him um, and, and not being ashamed of his message and, uh, and, and so on, because it takes courage to differ. As I'm questioning things and I'm trying to interpret Scripture— and I'm trying to make sure that I guess I'm migrating to a healthy place, knowing that I'm an influence on my children and my church and the people that I work with. How do I make sure that as I'm dealing with Bible and theology and living, that I'm not just one huge mobile Dunning-Kruger hypothesis that's doing harm <laughs> at the same time? Yeah, well, um, first of all, the, you know, the thing you'll hear from your critics is it's a slippery slope. If you question this, then you'll question that. And so they, you know, the next thing you know, you'll be a Nazi uh, <laughs> throwing babies in the river, right? So, um, uh, you know, there's, there is an awful lot of anxiety, but here's the problem. And I'm not, I'm not about to make your life easier, Seth. Fantastic. But, Thank you so uh, much. <laughs> but but uh, I'm going to make it harder in a positive direction. And, and here's what I'd say. When you learn about our religious history, and you learn, for example, the role that white evangelical Christianity played in, in justifying and perpetuating and defending slavery, or the role that white evangelical Christianity played 
in opposing the civil rights movement or in opposing equality of women or in the ongoing stigmatization of LGBTQ people or in the exploitation of the environment or in an absurd eschatology that basically tells people, be happy when things get worse. Um, that's a sign that Jesus is coming. Uh, so don't do anything to try to make things better. Just, uh, you know, just in a sense, be a bystander to the decay of the world. You know, all of those elements of our heritage say that if you don't ask questions, you're in great danger too. <laughs> in other words, you're, you're coming from a tradition that has done a remarkable, amazing harm. I didn't even mention what um, our ancestors did to the native peoples mm -hmm. and, and justified it based on the Bible. I didn't even mention the horrific history of Christian anti-Semitism. Um, uh, and, and so you put all that together and you realize life is dangerous and we have moral responsibility. Um, asking questions is risky, but not asking questions, I would say, is even riskier. And what that means is we just have to be morally responsible people. And I think we have to be humble. And, you know, however, I know people are in different places in their, in their faith and so on. But whatever degree, what, whatever meaning prayer has to a person to, to be saying, please help me not lead others astray. Please help me find the truth. Those sort of sincere gut prayers, it seems to me, are deeply valuable on many levels, but just on a psychological level, they're a reminder to us that we don't have all the answers. And they're, in a sense, a reminder to us to not just be reactive uh, and and not just be reacting against one thing and then jumping to the opposite extreme. You put all that together and suddenly it matters that we become sincere seekers of truth. And uh, and And I think that's a great place to be. I agree. And you're right. That doesn't make my life any harder or any easier but but that's fine life life shouldn't be easy i am curious and it's and it's because it happened to me last night so and and then when i told a friend of mine that actually works um in chicago with the evangelical covenant church um he had said well you know that brian has talked about that before and i said no i did not know this and so i had i had put something on facebook that said you know remember when we throw around words like heretic that luther was branded as one up until like 2008. And so, <laughs> and, 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 you know, it wasn't until I forget which, I think it was Pope Benedict basically said, yeah, never mind. I don't think he meant to hurt the church. So we'll say he's not a heretic. But for 500 years, he was a heretic. Yes. And so I tried to tell people remember when you call someone that, that you are currently sitting in a faith from one that was branded that. And, <laughs> yes. and it's, it's awful hypocritical. And so, he had said, well, you have to ask him about something called, I think he said, generous orthodoxy, which is off the topic of spiritual yeah. migration, but I'm genuinely curious, and I did not have time yeah. to prepare or even read that book from last night to today. Oh, no. So. No, no worries. So, yeah, in 2004, I had a book come out called Generous Orthodoxy, and the funny backstory is I'd written a couple of very controversial books. I'd written a book called A New Kind of Christian, and uh, that, that had gotten me a lot of, a lot of people it really, really helped them and other people, um, you know, it put me on a target on my back. But, uh, I wanted to write a book that would be completely non-controversial and just very, you know, kind of pastoral and so on. So I wrote this book, Generous Orthodoxy, which ended up making some people madder than anything I'd ever <laughs> written. But, um, the title comes from a theologian named Hans Fry. 
And Hans Frey said something like this. I'm going to guess he said this in the 1960s or 1970s, uh, maybe a little later than that. But Hans Frey said something like this, that the way forward is going to involve certain elements from liberal Christianity and certain elements uh, from uh, conservative Christianity. And he said, um, what that will lead us to is a generous orthodoxy. Uh, now, uh, I, I know that the word orthodoxy means a whole lot of different things to a lot of different people. It's, it's like that word heretic. It's the flip side of that. Uh, what, what, you know, a Calvinist calls orthodoxy, a Methodist calls heresy, and what a Protestant calls orthodoxy, a Catholic calls heresy, and what a Catholic calls orthodoxy, an Eastern Orthodox might call heresy. So, uh, you know, these are all contested words, but, uh, what, I, uh, when I use that word, here's what I mean. I think there is a way for us to remain, to, to be even more deeply, uh, committed to Jesus. I, and even more deeply rooted in the scriptures. But that is actually a way out of fundamentalism of whatever sort. And that actually sends us into the world with generosity toward our neighbors who, of whatever religion or non-religion. And I don't think that that path is a path of less fidelity to Jesus and less fidelity to the best of the Christian tradition. I think it's actually more faithful. And, uh, but I know that, and that's why the book, that, that book, Generous Orthodoxy, got a lot of attention because I basically was saying that, uh, if you're not generous, if you're not living a way of life, which is a way of love that sends you into the world to love your Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, a Jewish atheist neighbor as you love yourself, then I don't actually think that's orthodox and uh, that your orthodoxy is, to paraphrase Paul, a noisy gong and clanging cymbal. Uh, and so, you know, I, I feel totally comfortable and confident saying that, but I know it really upsets some people. Yeah. No, it, it, it definitely does upset quite a, quite a few people. Uh, I find that people don't like when you question their certainty. Um because they don't have anything to fall back on. How and you never will. You never change. Your goodness always wins. So I will love you. And I'll lean in. You'll be the one I choose. The one I run to. I will trust your kindness. Hold on to. just referenced you know other churches you know muslim brothers and and everything else so how do how do how should our church and us as members of it work in unison with people of other faith yeah so let me uh, if if you don't mind let me just take one word that people like uh you and me who were brought up in a, a certain form of christianity a word that was very clearly defined for us the word salvation and for us, salvation meant we that were born with this thing called original sin or total depravity. And that meant that God was obligated to torture us forever in a conscious torment in hell. And that unless we could somehow get an exemption from that 
uh, original sin, we certainly couldn't work our way out of it. So we would need some sort of legal pardon or exemption. Uh, you know, our future is hot. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the word salvation means the exemption you get from uh, being punished by God. Um, well, look, uh, I, I, uh, I've done plenty of wrong things. I need all the forgiveness uh, that's available to me. I'm not downgrading forgiveness, but that's just not what the word salvation means in the Bible. In the, uh, and I know that's shocking for people to hear because we've been so deeply indoctrinated in a certain religious tradition. But if you go into Hebrew scriptures, first of all, they didn't believe in heaven and hell. And I know that comes as a shock for a lot of people, but it's un- uncontestable. Uh, in the, the Hebrews, uh, ancient Hebrew people had no concept of heaven and hell as Christians do. They had no concept of original sin. These were concepts that didn't even exist in early Christianity for uh, a couple of se- uh, three, three or four centuries. But um, the word salvation derived its meaning from the story of the Exodus. God saved people from slavery. And so I think the deepest meaning of the word salvation is not getting an exemption card so you won't go to hell. I think the meaning of salvation is being liberated from the unjust, dehumanizing, cruel, destructive systems that we human beings make. If you want to say it this way, it means being liberated from human systems of sin uh, on a personal and social level. And uh, so if you understand salvation as liberation, um, then when I see my Muslim neighbor uh, who's being oppressed, I want my neighbor to experience liberation. By the way, including if he's being oppressed by my fellow Christians. I want liberation for him, not in spite of me being a Christian, but because I'm a Christian, and I believe that Jesus taught a, a message of liberation and lived a lifestyle of liberation and launched a movement of, of liberation on all levels. And um, uh, so uh, then if I have a Muslim neighbor who wants to work for mutual liberation, who wants to work for the common good, I just celebrate, I rejoice, I say, thank God that the Spirit of God is at work in the world to inspire more and more people to want to work for uh, the common good and work for a shared liberation. And I, I want to tell them, I want to share them every single gift that I've received through being a follower of Christ. But uh, I, I also don't want to impose on them all the dysfunction that I've experienced in the Christian religion. So uh, to me, being a follower of Christ means, of course, I love my Muslim neighbor as myself and my Buddhist and my Catholic and my Baptist and whatever neighbor. To be a follower of Christ is to learn to love others as you would, as you love yourself and to treat others as you wish to be treated. I saw this, and I didn't verify it, but I've seen recently, it, it had basically a lot of the, the major religions broken down, and it said basically, you know, Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. And then it had texts from the Quran, and texts from the Torah, and texts from Buddha, and texts from everywhere. And they all basically boiled down to that simple truth. And I'm not saying that all paths, quote-unquote, merge into one. I'm not saying that, mostly because I haven't really studied that. But um, it's yeah. I, I find it not a, a random consequence or a random coincidence that many of the yeah. major religions that still exist today have that same tenet at their heart. If you can get past yes. the ISIS version of, of Islam or the uh, Westboro Baptist version of Christianity or, you know, the extreme, yes. the extreme wing or the extreme arm of whatever the religion is that you're looking at. 
I think I think that's very well said, uh, Seth. Here, if you think about it like this, I think in in just about every every well, let me say this: in every religion I have studied and gotten to know people who are part of, um, there is a pole of that religion uh, that calls people toward love, that calls people toward mutual respect, that calls people toward uh, working for the common good that calls people toward humility and says, we don't have all the answers um, that calls people to be humble and keep, uh, keep learning through their whole lives and through all generations. So that poll really exists. Um, and in every religion I've been exposed to, there's another poll that is like, we're better than everybody else. We've got it right. They've got it wrong. They're out to get us. We better defend ourselves. And, uh, it's just remarkable how similar. So I've become convinced that that problem isn't a religious problem. That is a human problem. <laughs> hmm. and, and it because human beings are involved, it shows up in every religion. And yeah. this to me is a wonderful thing about Jesus. You can say, oh, Jesus was entering into this human problem. And if we say that we want to follow him, then we are going to take very seriously what he said about how to deal with that human problem. We're going to watch how he does it in the stories about him. And we're going to listen to what he says in his teaching and find that. And we'll find great guidance and resource in that for dealing with it in our situation, because it, it's not just, it's not just religion. There are different ways of being American. There are different ways of being a capitalist there. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. There's a, a more and less loving version of everything and if we believe that the spirit is the, that the spirit is the presence of God in this world that evokes love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, if, if that's what we believe, then we look for those fruits and say, oh, it's not that this person has that religious bumper sticker on their car, that they're wearing that religious label. It's, oh, this person is showing fruit that comes from the Holy Spirit. I don't think that's being less Christian to believe that. I, I think that's being deeply Christian to believe that. So when you wrote this book, it, it came out in 2016, which is right when President Trump was doing whatever he is still doing. And so yeah, I feel as though I was fine calling myself an evangelical prior to his presidency. I don't know that mm-hmm. I'm fine with calling myself that now because of... Yeah huge figures like you know Jerry Falwell Jr. or Paige Patterson or just people that that speak or treat people in a way that I cannot endorse in any way shape or form yeah. and I'm also if I'm honest really have to watch my tongue especially on Twitter um because I find that my worst my worst sarcastic self is is 140 characters away so how do <laughs> how do yeah my um I have some snark I have to I have to really rein it in sometimes. How do we exist in religion and politics as a quote unquote evangelical Christian? And by evangelical, I mean yeah. someone trying to tell other people about Jesus, not whatever yeah. Jerry Junior's doing. How do we exist yeah. in America and religion and politics today and tomorrow and honestly for the next four years maybe eight. Yeah, I, well, yeah. That there's there's a whole set of things to talk about there, um, but you know, um, I, I have the same struggle. I have the same struggle. Uh, I grew up evangelical. 
Uh, in some ways, I feel it's rude for me to call myself an evangelical now because so many evangelicals, it just upsets them so much and they want to say that I'm not evangelical or whatever. I, I don't like being rude and uh, and so on. It is true that I am from an evangelical background, and that will be true until the day I die. It is also true that I have not rejected the greatest treasures that I received in my heritage. Um, but it is also true that I have changed and evangelicalism has changed. And uh, I, like you, I'm appalled. I'm disgusted. I'm sickened by what goes on under the name evangelical, especially in this Trumpism uh, that we're witnessing and the, the racist, anti-environmental, anti-poor, uh, uh, anti-Muslim, uh, anti-gay uh, rhetoric that goes along with it. And, and now what I've come to see is, oh, this is a really common pattern in human behavior and human politics, um, where politicians, in a democracy, it happens one way, one way. In ancient monarchies, it happened another way. Um, but where powerful people create alliances by making promises to people, and those people are so enamored by the promises that they're willing to swallow whatever else is sold to them. And and I think that's what's happened with evangelical leaders. They they received promises, uh, and they're willing. They, they it, Donald Trump could shoot someone in the middle of Fifth Avenue, and they would say he had a good reason to do it. You know, they would support him. So. We have every reason to to be appalled by that. So here's what I recommend for what it's worth. Seth. I just recommend that we start by saying I'm a human being. And as a human being, I have all the problems that human beings have. And I'm a mess, but I'm trying to leverage my life to go in a better direction of being human. <laughs> and I'm a human being like all human beings who's born in a tradition. My tradition uh, was evangelical Christianity. I could have rejected it, but instead, in the core of it, I found a treasure that I've, I'm trying to be true to, true to, and and faithful to, and I still find life-giving. Whether that's called evangelicalism, whether it's called Christianity, I don't really care how it's labeled. But I just have to be honest that I see a treasure there. So I'm a human being who's trying to be honest, and I, I received a tradition that I'm frustrated with in some ways, and other dimensions find life-giving. And I'm working that out. And, you know, you don't always have time to give that kind of explanation. But the interesting thing, whenever I do give that kind of uh, uh, explanation, I have Jewish friends who say, oh, man, that's me, too. And Muslim mm-hmm. friends say, yeah, that's me, too. <laughs> and, and suddenly we find this deeper connection. You know, that's to me what's what's beautiful. There and I'm I'm certain that you've seen it. I don't see how you couldn't have. It's been everywhere. Um, there was a Pew Research study a few years ago about millennials, and I am one, barely, technically. I, I almost was whatever was before them, whatever that is. Um, so basically, they're leaving the church, and for reasons that, if anyone's listened to this podcast from the beginning, I parroted in my very first episode about just, you know, two-facedness, and I don't necessarily want to give money to a building. I want to give money to love on people, and and all of the normal reasons, and I I have to think you're familiar with it. But my concern is this. How do I, as, and I have a nine-year-old and a five-year-old that are constantly asking about God, asking about Jesus, and and I think, I, I know that we go to the to the right church to handle that on Sunday, but I struggle as someone that is still in the middle of, I'm going to borrow a phrase from one of the the followers on Twitter and a, and a listener 
he he had talked about well don't call it deconstruction think of it more like art restoration where you're 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 moving away things that are tarnishing the beauty of the foundation of the gospel and i really like yeah. that um a lot yeah. and and so how do i how do i sit with what i'm doing and not break my children or or raise them in a way that they're not able to see jesus in the way that i am is is it unavoidable yeah. to to quote unquote indoctrinate them is is it unavoidable or is there a way to do it correctly yeah yeah, you're asking a really important question. I, it's interesting. I, uh, you, you might remember in the early part of uh, the book, The Great Spiritual Migration, I talk about what if our churches became schools of love, and what would the curriculum of love be? Mm-hmm. If this thing is all about love, how would we do that? And, of course, my hope is that uh, five years from now, ten years from now, fifty years from now, that there could be tens of thousands of churches who whose primary focus is helping people become the most loving version of themselves possible so they build their lives around love for neighbor, self, the earth, and God. And um, and so I, you know, I, I still have hope that that can happen. I also have agony when I think of it not happening, because if it doesn't happen, it's not like there's a long line of other organizations <laughs> that are trying to teach love in the world. Thank God there are some, but uh, what we do in the meantime is really, really tricky. And so if I could just show maybe two things about this. First, just by way of an experience, um, uh, I took a sabbatical, um, 10 months of travel and speaking, uh, right after I wrote, uh, Great Spiritual Migration. And, um, during that sabbatical, I got a spiritual director and a, a coach and, therapist and I just wanted to do some work on my own story in my own life and I entered this period I think it went on about six weeks where I felt about as down as I've felt in my adult life like this huge pain and grief inside of me and part of it was that Donald Trump was bringing out the worst in America and I just was grieved by this ugly ugly Americanism that was being sort of the, the the flames were being fanned, but on a more personal level, I realized what it was was grief that I had anything to do with evangelical Christianity. In other words, even though the church that I pastored was on the very fringes of evangelicalism, I realized I brought people into the orbit of evangelical Christianity, and I, in some ways, rendered people. Uh, uh, more under the influence of some of these toxic religious personalities and um, who think they're wonderful and think they're, uh, you know, they're the real deal, but I, I think are uh, dangerous. And, and then the deepest grief came when I realized I'd exposed my children to that. And then one step after that, as I continued to uncover it, I remember one day when I realized I'm grieving what this religion did to me as a boy, like, I was a curious kid and this religion made me feel guilty for being curious and, you know, all the rest. So all that's to say that I think the number of parents who feel what you're feeling is huge. And, and I was just on a call the other, uh, not long ago with a group of people who were saying, we got to figure out what to do about this. And <laughs> I don't know if this term will be anything to you, but they said, we've got to create the post-evangelical focus on the family. <laughs> in other words, <laughs> provide resources to parents who don't want to do it, you know, the way they were taught. Um, uh, so here's what I'd recommend. I'd recommend 
you just be honest and you say to your kids, listen, kids, there are religion can be a beautiful thing. Religion can be a bad thing. Um, and I hope you'll follow my example. I'm doing the best I can to set an example for you. Here's how I see it. And I hope that makes sense to you. And you can always ask questions. You can always disagree. But here's how I see it. In other words, and, and you might even say, here's the kind of family we're trying to build together. And you're part of this family. And I hope you'll help this be true of our family. So in other words, you don't have control for how the Christian religion presents itself. But you do have control of how you present yourself and some influence on how your family does. And I'd start there and build from there. And I would try to build in them the ability to discern, just as Jesus thought, that it's uh, you know a tree, not by its label, but by its fruit. Mm-hmm. And I teach people to look for the fruit. And I teach them where they see bad fruit to not hate that person, but to want to help set a positive example for that person. No, that's good. That's hard, but that's good. And I, I will say we're trying that, but I find I can see when I answer my son's questions about Adam and Eve or creation, it's usually something that's big like that. It's never it's never a big theological concept. It's always the merging of what he sees and the mystical ver- yes. the mystical realities of what religion has to fill in. And he yes. can I think he I think he can see that I don't know what to say. Um, but that I could answer the question. He knows me well enough. And you can tell that there's a portion in the back of his brain that's like, I know that you're not telling me something. I know you're not. Yes. Um, and I think you're right. Maybe I should just tell him, here's why I'm not telling you. I just, because I'm not, yes. I'm just not sure. Um, I think, and, I think his parents, I, I'm I, afraid I, to not be sure. So, though, so. I, I think that's really true. And, you know, I think when our kids are young, especially, we can give them clarity, even where we can't give them certainty. So clarity might be, um, you know, son, I want you to know, uh, there are, there's, there are many kinds of truth. Like if your son says, you know, is the Genesis story true? I'd say, I want you to know there are many kinds of truth. Now you can say that with deep, you know, confidence and clarity, and your son might not get it, but what he just got is something clear and honest from his father. And, you know, for the, for the next 20 years, you might repeat that 30 more times. And over time, that's going to be one of the wise sayings of his life. And he might not be ready for the whole meaning of it when he's seven, but being given that piece of wisdom from his dad when he's seven will mean a lot to him when he's 14. Yeah. Yeah. Last question. I always like to ask a, a similar version of this question to everyone. So knowing what you know, your experience, your wisdom, your history, uh, your knowledge of church history, what is one thing that those that are listening, be they a layman or a pastor or who knows, whatever, what is one thing that we can do to actually impact our community and our churches today that will be something that will become generative, that will uh, further itself just by measure of being a good thing. Yeah. Well, I, I know this is going to sound trite, but it's my honest answer is focus on love. That's what this thing is all about. Focus on love. Was and, that your uh, answer before the wedding, the the royal wedding? Because that's everybody's answer lately. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, hey, listen, I just got to say, thank God that uh, while we have all these bozos, you know, 
putting Jesus and Trump uh, in in the same peanut butter sandwich. <laughs> Thank God we have somebody like Bishop uh, Michael Curry who's really emphasizing that this thing is really about love. So, and thank God for Pope Francis and thank God for people like you in this podcast and others who are, are trying to set a more positive example. But yeah, I, I, I that's what I would say. Uh, that, that's, that's what, what it all comes down to. Yeah. Small aside, I, I told my wife and a few other friends, it's like, I feel like I'm now going to have to be Episcopalian. Like I don't, I feel like I just joined the Episcopalian because <laughs> that was a fantastic sermon. <laughs> so um, it was, it was, it was a great sermon. Yeah. Well, Brian, thank you so much. Um, where would you point people to? Obviously, we've got your website, Brian McLaren dot, I think I'm pretty sure it's dot net. Um, and yeah. uh, you've got some great blogs there and, and a, a large archive of blogs. Where else would you point people to um, to engage in this rabbit hole of deconstruction, reconstruction, questioning uh, in a healthy way? Where else would you send people to? Well, well the good news is there are so many uh, there are so many people like you who are uh, opening space in these conversations through blogs and through vlogs and through uh, podcasts. And uh, so, you know, anybody who uh, uh, you recommend, I'm sure I would recommend too. Um, if people are struggling with the Bible, uh, my friend Peter Enns has an incredible uh, podcast called The Bible for Normal People. I think he does a great job of that. Um, if people are just interested in geeking out on theology, with a whole lot bigger, you know, higher roof and, you know, bigger dimensions than they used to. My friend Trip Fuller has Homebrew Christianity podcast where, I mean, the, the resource of that is incredible. Um, and, um, uh, I work with an organization called Convergence and, um, I'm leading something called the Convergence Leadership Project, which is aimed at, at trying to help, uh, congregations that are on this journey together uh, keep moving forward in a good way. So lots of great resources out there. Those would be a few. Fantastic. Well, I'll, I'll, for those listening, I'll link those in the show notes. So make sure you hit pause, go down and click on the, on all of the appropriate links. Brian, thank you so much for being on. Thank you for your time. Uh, and I, I genuinely look forward to maybe doing it again in the future. I look forward to that as well. Thanks so much. No problem. Take care, Brian. So this was recorded in the middle of the year, 2018, right around the royal wedding, and you'll hear us reference that. And I apologize for that dated reference, but uh, I have the small problem of I did too many interviews at one time, and there just weren't enough weeks to release them all, and so forgive me for the dated reference. I find it kind of funny, but I still feel like I should say something about that. I cannot stress how big of a topic this is, specifically as I think about my son, and my daughter, my son recently uh, accepted Jesus uh, as his savior. And those that causes bigger questions, questions that I'm not prepared to answer. Uh, but I feel like I need to be. And that's only going to get bigger the older that he gets. And your families matter in the same way. And the kids in your vicinity matter in the same way. And your peers matter in the same way. So that's huge. I would encourage you, if you haven't read The Great Spiritual Migration, to get a copy of it. It's been not long enough that it's in many libraries, and if not, it's almost always on sale somewhere at Amazon or other places like that. So get you a copy. 
the music that you heard interwoven throughout today's conversation is from musician Louise Gregg. She is a worship leader, a songwriter, and she's based in Manchester in the UK. She also works as a music therapist where she uses her music to help people who are having a wide range of challenges. So I would encourage you to support the artists that, that lend their music to this show. Go to louisegregg.com and support her in any way that you can. You can find her on Bandcamp and everywhere else. And as always, you'll hear the selections from today's show on the Can I Say This at Church podcast Spotify playlist. We'll talk to you next week. Blessings. Blessings.